how do you sign off on emails or letters? Do you go with best regards, sincerely, perhaps later alligator? I wonder how you would close or sign off on a letter like 1 Corinthians. Especially if you're someone like Paul, who uh, the Corinthians haven't really treated all that great. I told you, if I were him, I probably would have signed off, you're the worst, Paul. That's not, that's not what he does here. He gives us a glimpse into the heartbeat of this book in the way that he signs off in verse 24. My love be with all of you in Christ Jesus. Really, the whole book is focused on three primary themes. They are holiness, unity, and love. And Paul here is drawing our attention to the quality that cultivates both holiness and unity. That quality which is underneath of the text. The quality that the words of 1 Corinthians were bleed, would bleed if these words had blood. It is the quality of love. In fact, uh, verses 13 and 14 in this chapter could serve as kind of a hermeneutical spotlight for, for everything he writes in this book. It's be alert. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Act like men. Be strong. Do everything in love. The letter is a call to Christian maturity. That's what the, literally, if you translate it, act like men, the idea of being courageous, it's, it's um, wartime imagery. There's also, if you remember, Paul has been drawing our attention to the childishness of the Corinthians as they've demanded their own rights and demanded their own way throughout. He's calling them to be mature in Christ, to grow up, to consider the interest of others ahead of their own interests, to build up with love rather than puffing themselves up with knowledge and with spiritual gifts them to be mature and to live like Jesus. And so, as we saw last week, that this last chapter seems to be aimed at cultivating love and, and unity in the church. And that's the main idea of the message, is that, that we are to cultivate love and unity in our church. We want to be the church we want to do everything in love. We're going to see that we can cultivate love and unity through submission to God's will, submission to godly leaders, and devotion to God's church. Let me pray and we'll get into the text this morning. God, we come to the end of a long study in 1 Corinthians this morning. And what we've recognized throughout is 
we are just as messed up as this Corinthian church. That we are sinners just as in need of your grace as this collection of sinners made saints in Corinth. We're just like them. We used to be stuck in lives of sin, deserving of your wrath, but we were washed, sanctified, justified by your grace applied to our lives through faith. Faith in Christ. His death for our sins. And His resurrection for our justification. This is a beautiful truth. And it is the truth that unites us to one another and to Christ Himself. It's this truth that compels us to cultivate love and unity here. Help us to hear this morning your words and to be shaped by them once more that we might honor you as individuals in our lives and corporately as the church together. This we pray in Christ's name, amen. All right, last week we looked at the first four verses and we brought out those five different uh, aspects of the Corinthian giving that was aimed towards cultivating unity, not only in their church here in Corinth, but in those churches there in Jerusalem. And so Paul has been showing us how we can build unity through giving, along with a number of other things. You can you know, refer to last week's sermon uh, if you missed it. But now he, he cuts off after he tells them about this collection and he begins to tell us of his travel plans. And this is what he writes in verses 5 and 6. I will come to you after I pass through Macedonia or I will be traveling through Macedonia and perhaps I will remain with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I go. I don't want to see you now just in passing since I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord allows. Paul is planning on taking a trip to Corinth. He wants to spend some quality time for about a year and a half, and he's eager to get back to them. He loves this church. He's even thinking about spending the winter there. He doesn't want just a, a drop by uh, for a weekend. He wants to get back and, and re-engage some of those relationships. He loves this church. You see, you see his love again in, um, in verse 17. So I'm delighted to have Stephanus. This is who the Corinthians had sent to Paul, perhaps with their letter that he's been responding to throughout the book. I'm delighted to have Stephanus. I'm going to mispronounce these names. Fortunatus and Achaicus. Their names, we don't really know much about them. Uh, Fortunatus, if that's how you pronounce it, uh, it means lucky. And the other one just means guy from Achaeus. They're really non-specific. We don't know who they are. I'm delighted to have them with me because these men have made up for your absence. 
for they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, recognize such people. He's refreshed Corinthians with them. And he knows that as he writes back to the Corinthians, that they also will be refreshed through this, this communion that he's having with the saints. Since I've gotten a little bit older and, and gotten married and, and had some kids, there have been times when my mom has, you know, now she's learned to text, so she sends me a text message or gives me a phone call. When are you coming to see me? You know, don't forget about your poor old mom. And there have been times where I go, there, there are obligations that I have, this or that, where I can't, I can't just go and see her. But what I've done instead is arranged for my wife and children to go and spend some time with her. It's really just after the kids anyway, right? Grandparents know that. But what happens when, when she hosts the rest of my family is that she enjoys it. She's spending time with a piece of my everyday life. People that have been shaped in some way by my influence and my presence. And there's a sense in which when my family visits my mother, she's, she's being refreshed. And this is what's happening when, when the Corinthians send Stephanus and his crew to Paul. He's getting just a part of Corinth. The people that he loves and longs for has come to him and it's refreshing to his soul. He loves this church. This wayward church that questions his credentials, and pushes back on his teaching. He loves them. I love the way uh, he describes his love for a different church. And I think it applies here in 1 Thessalonians Chapter 4, I'm sorry, chapter 2, he tells them, Although we could have been a burden as Christ's apostles, instead we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother with her own children. We cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear themselves as nursing mothers. I haven't seen any nursing mothers pastors conference going on. But I do wish more, more pastors would behave this way. It's my prayer that I would behave this way, like a nursing mother with her children. Think about the care and the, the gentleness and the concern a mom has for her little baby. And babies, they can be messy and whiny, kind of like the Corinthians. But when they're yours, you, you, you love them. This is how Paul loves this church. Do you love the church like that? As Christians, we are those who love the things that Jesus loved. And Jesus loves the church. Do you? Paul wants to go to Corinth, but that's not what God wants. 
Ephesus until Pentecost because a wide door for effective ministry has opened for me. Yet many oppose me. Now, if this is me, this sentence doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Because I'm going, if there's opposition in Ephesus, there's my excuse to hurry up and get to Corinth and spend some time there. What do you mean a wide door for effective ministry is open for you in Ephesus? And there's opposition there. Yes, there's, Paul is enduring this opposition, and it's intense, we know from elsewhere. He just commented on it back in verse 32 of 1 Corinthians 15, remember? He says, I fought wild beasts in Ephesus. And we said this is probably a metaphorical use of language where he's saying that people were beastly towards me, they mistreated me, they opposed me. But even if, if it's not metaphorical, it gets worse, right? That they actually threw him in a pit with wild animals, and he had to fight beasts. Like, either way, it's not good for Paul. It's not going well in Ephesus. From Ephesus, and Paul has every reason to just get out of Dodge. But that's not what he does. Because from a spiritual perspective, everything is happening right on schedule. God is in control. God is sovereign. And even though Paul doesn't see any sprouts coming up from the ground, even though there is plenty of opposition, his hand is still on the plow. And he's still doing the hard work of a farmer because he knows that God is the one who gives the growth. He knows that God has given him an opportunity to see the gospel bear fruit among the Ephesian people. And so he's not deterred by the opposition that he faces. I just think that, if I'm being honest, there are many times in my life where if I see some opposition, I'm going the other direction. That's uncomfortable. God, do you really want me to do that? I don't don't quite feel like it today. It'll be hard. You know, I had a late night last night. I'm going to weasel my way out of different things that God is calling me to do. I wonder if you're that way at all. And as I thought about this, a, a funny thing occurred to me. If I only do the things that God has called me to do when I feel like it, I won't do them very often. I started checking off the list of things that God calls me to do that I don't always feel like doing. Attending church, though that's harder for me to get out of nowadays. But, but attending church, I love y'all, but there are Sundays I wake up and I go, kids were up last night, I just want to lay here. Praying, I'm so busy, do I really have time to pray? I don't feel like it. Sharing my faith. This goes on and on. But, but if we only do the things that God has called us to do, especially hard things when we feel like it, we will very rarely do those things. I think one of the ones that's most popular for me as I thought about that one, not, not just with, um, I don't feel like it right now, but I'll, I'll get really smart about it. 
I'll, I'll use that old quote that nobody really knows who said it, but they give it to St. Francis of Assisi. I think I probably just said his name wrong. But he said, preach the gospel at all times. Use the words if necessary. And people love that. And I go, yeah, hey, I'm preaching the gospel. I smiled at this dude. I waved. But the truth is, is that phrase doesn't make any sense. It's, it's akin to saying, breathe at all times. Use oxygen if necessary. Right? It doesn't make any sense. For us to preach the gospel means to, to use words. People can't hear and believe unless they're spoken to. Nobody's going to look at your life and go, man, he is a really good person. I should, I should trust in Jesus. Like, that's just not going to happen. In fact, when you don't use words, the opposite happens. Man, that person really has it all together. I wish I could have it together as them. And that's not the gospel, right? The gospel is, I'm a broken sinner. I'm a complete idiot. But God has loved me anyway. He's guaranteed me a beautiful future. He died for my sins to make me right with God. And guess what? Anybody can get in on it. You can get in on it. All you have to do is believe in Christ. I wonder what difficult thing God is calling you to do. Maybe it's sharing your faith and it'll be difficult because it's a family member or it's somebody that you've had a long-term friendship with and that will make things weird. Be hard. I don't want to downplay it. Sometimes it's hard to get awkward and have those hard conversations. But if God's calling you to do it, it's worth it. Just because you face opposition, it's not an excuse to not obey God. I think opposition being a poor reason for giving up on a particular mission or venture is, is borne out in history. So just think about um, World War II and the Normandy assaults, right? And they're taking the beachheads. And they go, you know what, guys on the ships, let's just turn around. There's lots of opposition up there. Let's forget about this whole uh, assault. Forget about the mission. It's going to be too hard. Well, no. They, they took the beaches at great cost. Thousands of lives were lost. But the long-term gain was it turned the tides of Germany's defeat and uh, the Allied victory in World War II. Just because there's opposition in front of you, that doesn't mean that you have a a good reason for not obeying God or or not following through with what you've been called to. Does that make sense? Christians are called to do difficult things. And this shouldn't come as a surprise to us we follow a savior who did, I, I think, the most difficult thing in all of history, which was save us. I mean, I imagine in my head, uh, God the Father saying to God the Son in heaven before time began, you know these people are going to sin against us. They're going to rebel against us and wish us dead. But I th- they're worth saving. Yeah, yeah, I know it. 
uh, God the Son says, it's going to be hard. It's going to cost everything to reconcile them. But I'll go. And God the Spirit saying, yes, and I will empower you to live a perfect life like they should have lived. I will help carry your feet to the cross. I'll help you endure what you're going to endure. Jesus faced death and infinite condescension in moving from heaven to earth. Faced all the opposition in the world, but he didn't go, well, this is a reason to not do it. He said, this is a, a door that is wide open. The father said to him, the blood that you will spill on the cross will fall to the ground and a crop will rise up from it. A resurrection from the dead. These people that have chosen death over life, well, they can be saved. We're called to do hard things. Opposition is not usually a good reason for giving up on God's call in your life. You should submit yourself to the will of God. Paul wants to visit the Corinthians, but God wants Paul to stay in Ephesus. And so he does. Notice in verse 12, Paul also wants Apollos to go to the Corinthians. And it seems likely, he says this now about, um, which is usually in response to their letter. If you go back throughout uh, the chapters, you'll see now about a lot. And so it seems like they asked him to ask Apollos to come. It is now about our brother Apollos. I strongly urged him to come to you with the brothers, but he was not at all willing to come now. However, he will come when he has an opportunity. Whose will is in view here is really ambiguous. He's been talking about Apollos, and so context dictates that we say it's Apollos' will. But it, it really, like, if you bring it across literally, it's, it was not at all the will for Apollos or him to come. And so when you're translating that, you go, whose will? <laughs> right? And, and as a Christian, I go, I likely think it was it's God's will. Not at all God's will for Apollos to go. Either way, Apollos doesn't go, and it was God's will because he didn't go. But we see twice in Paul's travel plans. Paul wants to go to Corinth. God wants him to stay in Ephesus. Paul wants Apollos. He urges Apollos to go to the Corinthians. God doesn't want Apollos to go to the Corinthians. And here's the point of this first section. I think in all of our plans in life, we want to submit ourselves to God's will, even when it's difficult, even when it's not particularly what we want. We want to be a people that says in, in um, the same language as uh, James, if the Lord wills. I wonder, are you the kind of person that says, my kingdom come, my will be done, or thy kingdom come, thy will be done? Are we the kind of church that says, God, give us your word, we will submit ourselves to your will, we will do things your way, or are we the kind of church that says, we're going to do things according to our traditions and go about it the way we've always done it? Whose will rules in your life? Whose will rules in this church? It must be God's. 
if you love me, then you will obey my commands. Paul also says that since he can't come, and Apollos can't come, he's going to be sending Timothy, which is pretty disappointing if you're a Corinthian, right? You remember how they were talking about associating with these famous orators, and especially Apollos, and they mentioned him throughout the letter. Apollos is who you'd really like. He's the celebrity pastor, but he's not coming. Oh, maybe we will take Paul. People know who Paul is. Not even Paul is coming. They're getting Paul's protege. And Paul knows they're going to be disappointed. Listen to what he says. If Timothy comes, see that he has nothing to fear while with you, because he is doing the Lord's work just as I am. So let no one look down on him. Send him on his way in peace so that he can come to me, because I am expecting him with the brothers I'm sending Timothy to you, but make sure y'all treat him right, is what Paul is saying. You wonder, Timothy was there with Paul planting this church over about a year and a half. Wouldn't they be happy to see Timothy? We remember that uh, this isn't the first time we've heard of Timothy coming to the Corinthians. Paul told us about it earlier in chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. He says this, Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. This is why I have sent Timothy to you. He is my dearly loved and faithful child in the Lord. He will remind you about my ways in Christ Jesus, just as I teach everywhere in every church. They're not going to be happy to see Timothy because Timothy is there to help them to imitate Paul who's imitating Jesus. And they've been trying to do things their own way. They've been imitating other people. Timothy's going to remind them about Paul's ways in Christ Jesus. Timothy's going to remind them about the good and faithful teaching, about what it means to be committed to Christ. And so Paul is worried that Timothy's going to catch some of the anger that would be aimed at Paul. And he says, no, I'm sending Timothy to you. Treat him well. Listen to him. Allow him to shepherd your souls. Submit to him. He goes on. Be alert. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Do everything in love. Brothers and sisters, you know the household of Stephanus. They are the first fruits of Achaia and have devoted themselves to serving the saints. I urge you also to submit to such people and to everyone who works and labors with them. Here's the, the big idea with Timothy and Stephanus in particular. Paul is saying, there are godly leaders among you. Submit yourself to them. Submit yourself to those who have given themselves to caring for your souls. To submit yourself to godly leadership is a great blessing. Remember, I had a pastor at my church previous to here, and one of the things that he secretly did that not anybody really, nobody really knew about was that he used to, and we were a larger church, he used to clean the bathrooms every week rather than pay someone to do it. And we had like, you know, like a high school kind of bathroom going on in there. It wasn't an easy job, wasn't a glamorous job, but, but he did it. And nobody knew. I mean, I knew now, but 
It was because he was devoted to serving the saints. It was because he cared about the people that he was preaching to. It's because he, he was a good pastor. He was leading by example. This phrase, uh, devoted themselves to serving the saints, if you read it in the old King James Version, it says uh, they're addicted to the service of the saints. I like that version a little bit better. Addicted to the services. I just can't. I want to serve the church. I want to serve and love the people of God. That's the kind of attitude that marks godly leaders. Paul shares the same sentiment with us in Hebrews 13, verse 7. Remember your leaders who have spoken God's word to you as you carefully observe the outcome of their lives. Imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then down in verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, since they keep watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account, so that they can do this with joy and not with grief or sorrow, groaning. For that would be unprofitable for you. Are you happily submitted to your church's leadership? Do you know someone that maybe goes to church or attends church, calls themselves a Christian, but, but hangs out on the fringes of church life and hasn't really submitted themselves to uh, the church in any real way? Is that someone you? I'm going to challenge you to exhort them, maybe exhort yourself, to submit yourself to godly leadership. For a great many reasons, it's a blessing to you, but also because you can't be an obedient Christian and not do it. Paul says, obey your leaders in the Lord. It's for your good. I think that goes against the grain a little bit. That's one of those sandpaper on your skin kind of verses in the United States particularly because we don't want to submit to anybody, right? We, we don't like that idea. But friends, that's tantamount to what being a Christian is. We are submitted to God. We are submitted to God's leaders. And as we'll see in a second, we are going to be submitted to one another. To be submitted to godly leadership is God's blessing to you. A shepherd benefits the sheep. He has that crook and club. Goes through their you know, fur and fur, wool and picks out all the bugs and stuff. Protects them from animals that would devour them. Beats them away with the club. Friends, sheep without shepherds get eaten. They don't last very long. Godly leadership is for your benefit. You should submit yourself to it. Also note that that's not the only thing that we are supposed to submit ourselves to. We're to submit ourselves to such people that serve as pastor elders. But also, verse 16 
to everyone who works and labors with them. And as I thought about this, I went, this is everyone. This is everybody that considers themselves a Christian because to be converted to Christ means to be devoted to his people. I love the way uh, Alistair Begg says it. He says, if you're not devoted to the church, then you should question your conversion. Because people that have been converted to Christ love the people of Christ. They're addicted to that service. There's a sense as Christians that we are to submit ourselves to one another. This is the essence of Christian freedom. It's a freedom that comes through subjection, namely subjection to Christ, but it also also shows up in our relationships with one another. Galatians 5, uh, 13 and 15 helps us to see this a little bit. For you are called to be free, brothers and sisters. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another. The word for serve there is doulos. It can also be translated slave. Serve one another through love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus tells us that the economy of the kingdom of heaven is different than the world's economy. He says, if you want to be great, make yourself as a slave. Submit yourself to one another. Mark 10, 43 through 45. It is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you will be slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When we submit ourselves to our leadership, when we submit ourselves to one another and serve one another in love, we are following the pattern laid out in the life of Christ. I wonder, do you love the church enough to submit yourself to her leadership and to her people? Again, this is not easy. It goes against the grain a little bit, and I think that's why Paul uses the military imagery in verses 13 and 14. Be alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be courageous, be strong, and do everything in love. Because naturally, we don't want to submit to anyone or anything. We want to do things our way. Paul is saying, don't be taken captive by this empty philosophy. Follow Christ. You know, don't, don't be ambushed. Be on alert. Hold fast to that confession that Christ was crucified for our sins and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Live your life to the end of making Jesus look beautiful. Love other people and consider them more important than you really is a difficult calling that takes great discipline to live out. Because again, this is not something we usually feel like doing. Again, I thought about this and I went, you know, I don't always feel like brushing my teeth. I don't always feel like taking a shower. But you know what? I do it. Some of you are like, really? (laughs) I do it. I brush my teeth and I shower. Because if I don't, I will start to stink. If you don't commit yourself to Christ in such a way that you are daily waging war on your flesh, 
that you are daily trying to do what God's Spirit would lead you to do rather than what your, you, you and your sinful nature would want to do, you're going to, if you don't follow God, you're going to end up stinking. You're going to end up stinking of the world rather than smelling of grace. You'll begin doing things for you rather than doing everything out of love. Are you with me there? I don't know how clear I was. I'm just making sure here. It is hard to submit to one another in love. It is hard to submit to godly leadership. But these are things that will help us to cultivate a culture of unity, culture of love that is aimed towards making much of Christ, a culture that is devoted to the church. Back in verse 17. Paul continues, I'm delighted to have Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus present because these men have made up for your absence for they've refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, recognize such people. Just, are you refreshed when you come to church? Are you revived by the people of God? Do you long to see one another during the week? Verse 19, the churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla send you greetings warmly in the Lord, along with the church that meets in their home. All the brothers and sisters send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. This greeting is in my own hand. You see the word there over and over and over again, greeting, greeting, greeting. And Paul is, again, pointing us to Unity between churches, which again, we talked about that last week, so we're not going to use our time right now, but that's an application here, is that we're on the same team with other churches and we want to show them love and affection. We want to care about them because they're devoted, like we are, to making Jesus' name known. But also that we want to be devoted to greeting and loving one another. think our, the way we love one another in this church is kind of a, the kindergarten that trains us to love other churches well. I want to be a people that, that really welcomes and affectionately cares for one another. This greet one another with a holy kiss is, is obviously a culturally conditioned greeting. And so in some cultures it's a kiss, in some cultures it's a handshake, in some cultures it's a hug. Really important to know the difference or things can get weird sometimes. But the idea is that there would be a, a warmness when we welcome one another. A authenticity to our greeting of other Christians as brother or sister. That there would be real familial affection there. This is one of the reasons I like, like some people don't like it. I've started to like it, I used to not. Is when we do the little meet and greet and everybody kind of walks around and says hello to everybody. Those are really precious moments. Are there opportunities for you to say hello to somebody you haven't seen this week and to ask genuine questions about how they're doing? And if you're honest with each other, it can sometimes be really, really beneficial. I've been able to say quick prayers with people. I've been able to confess, I had a really long week this week. I'm not doing that great. I had to drag myself in here today and have somebody say, praise God, brother. I'm thankful that you're here. I'm encouraged that you're here. Thank you for when you could have stayed home being here for me. 
We want to be a church that welcomes and loves one another and, and really cares enough to, to greet. I know, I know maybe you don't feel like shaking someone's hand all the time. You don't feel like giving that hug out. Do it. It's for your good. We want to love one another. Then in verse 22, Paul abruptly reminds us that he does not write Christian greeting cards. If anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. Our Lord come. Here's this point. There's no middle ground when it comes to Jesus. He says, if you do not have faith in Jesus, if you do not love Jesus, it's because you hate Jesus. All of us have hated God all of us have been in rebellion against God before His grace comes into our lives. That's our natural state. Stained by sin, committed to self, living lives that scream out, crucify Him, crucify Him, crucify Him. The crucifixion is humanity's response to God's grace. Return to sender. We don't want to crown him. I wear the crown in my life. So we're going to kill him. That's our natural response to God. That's why we deserve the infinite wrath of God. And Paul is saying, if you don't love Jesus, the curse that you deserve will come upon you. He says this, our Lord come. Literally says anathema, which is be accursed. Maranatha, which is our Lord come. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And what takes a person from saying or, or longing for the curse of God because they hate God and, and beginning to look forward to the coming of God is the grace of God. That's why I think he follows us up with verse 23. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Because it is grace that changes our disposition before God. God's grace is an unmerited favor. It is, it is the gift of God. Something you don't deserve. In fact, it's given to you contrary to what you deserve. It's as if you had a credit card and you took out a ton of debt and then you couldn't pay it. And Jesus says, don't worry, I got that. I'm going to take your debt and then you can take all of my righteousness, all of my wealth. It's like if you were just about to get thrown into debtor's prison and Warren Buffett showed up and said, you know what, we're just going to switch finances here. Uh, you're going to take my finances and then I'm going to go into debtor's prison for you. This is what Christ does. He, he doesn't just bring us back to zero with God. He gives us the favor of God. So that God loves all who are united to Jesus by faith as much as he loves Jesus. When you put your faith in Christ, your sin has been dealt with on the cross of Christ. And you stand justified positionally before a holy God. And your Christian life here is aimed at living out that reality practically. 
Call that sanctification. We're becoming in practice what God has declared us to be in Christ. And that's really good news. That God loves you as much on your best day as he does on your worst day. Because of Christ. This is good news for all who will turn from their sin and follow Jesus. That turning only happens when God, by the grace of his Holy Spirit, changes our hearts and gives us eyes to see. Non-Christian, my prayer is that you would want this to be true. That you would ask God to open up Open up the eyes of your heart that you might see him and believe. Christian, my hope for you is that you would never get over grace. That you would never get over the gospel. Everything you have is by the grace of God. It should be hard for you to not be just overwhelmed with awestruck. have to pretend like you're not evil. Like you know in your head right now. You know the wicked thoughts you've had. And God loves you anyway. God loves messed up sinners like you and like me and like the Corinthians. Because he's full of grace. And he's given us grace upon grace in Christ Jesus. You can never outsin God's grace. You can never outrun his forgiveness. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Paul can write the final words of grace and love to the Corinthians because he, he loves the Corinthians. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Paul loves the church like Jesus loves the church. Do you? That is the difficult calling of a Christian. To love God and to love his messed up people. Lord Jesus, you have summoned us to yourself. Made us right with God of the universe. Given us life when we deserve death. For that we praise you. We look forward together to your coming back to earth to make all things new, to make everything sad untrue. To make the earth declare your glory even more loudly than it already does. We long for this, God. And as we long for it, we also long to cultivate the culture of heaven in our church now. A culture that bleeds the gospel 
that emanates grace. A culture of love and unity and holiness. God, we pray that you would build this church in that area, that you would cultivate a culture of heaven here. Make things on earth as they are in heaven. As we wait for you to turn earth into heaven. This we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.